0: passage today that talks about marriage. But before we get there, I wanted to share with you uh, an article I read from the New York Times. Uh, It was an op-ed written by a man man by the name of Alain de Botton, and he says some things that people don't normally say. And he says some things that people, I don't think, normally um, understand about marriage, uh, at least as they're Uh, entering into it. Let me just uh, share. The title is, it's not very encouraging, I need to tell you up front, not a very encouraging article, but ultimately a very helpful article. And the title is Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Here we go. He writes, marriage ends up as a hopeful, generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't yet know who they are or who the other might be binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully avoided investigating. I I think he has a point, honestly. And you might get the impression at first that Baton is not really into marriage, but he's actually a a proponent of marriage. What he's trying to do, though, is to uh, help people to uh, abandon what he calls the romantic idea of marriage. He's not, a, he's not telling people to abandon romance, that's not it. Just this romantic idea of marriage, which he then uh, defines in his article. He says, the romantic idea of marriage is the delusion that a perfect being exists who can meet all our needs and satisfy our every, every yearning. He says, if that's what you're going into marriage, that's your expectation and anticipation. This partner is the perfect being that's going to complete me, fill me, and satisfy me, then he says you are in for a rude uh, 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 awakening. He calls that a harsh philosophy. And he said the result of it is we end up lonely and convinced that our union with its imperfections is somehow not normal. He said he wants people to get rid of that idea of marriage and change it for a view that has an awareness that every human being will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce. But the failure of one particular partner to save us from our grief and melancholy is not an argument against that person and no sign that a union deserves to fail or be upgraded. Then he says this, Choosing whom to commit ourselves is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we would, we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. So we are not choosing the perfect one. We are choosing the particular variety of suffering that we would care to sacrifice ourselves for. And I, I think he's nailed it, personally. I think he says some things that are... I think this is very, very helpful. I, I won't have a show of hands, but... Like, How many of you went into marriage with that expectation? How many of you, when you think of marriage, is that the first thing that comes to mind? Because this is so so profoundly different than the the version of marriage and the fairy tale of marriage that is often uh, advertised to us. But I think his article, while being largely true and helpful, it leaves us with a problem. If marriage is that hard and that uh, fraught with difficulty and struggle and challenge, why bother? Why, why bother with this institution at all? And if you're in it, why, where do you find the, the strength to, to keep at it, to keep working at it? something that's this difficult. And that's exactly where our passage lands this morning. It it answers the question that this article poses. When you come to understand marriage as it is, not as we would like it to be, where do you find the strength to, to address it? And so this morning's passage, we've been in a series, we've been walking through the book of Malachi in a series called The God Who's Worthy of Our Best. And we've said that God is worthy of our best because of his great love for us. And we, we, we camp there in the beginning of uh, opening verses of Malachi 1 to see the profound and deep, powerful love that God has for us and how he's demonstrated that to us. And then we have been responding to that love and looking at the different ways that God calls us to express our love in response to his and today's passage is how to give God your best in, in marriage. It's, it's uh, uh, telling us why marriage is worth fighting for, even when it's as difficult as Alain de Botton uh, gives us a, a sense of and, and a warning of, really, in this, in this, uh, in this article. If you brought your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. If you didn't, we're on uh, page 753 of your pew Bible. And I'm going to read from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10, all the way down to verse 16. Malachi Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, down to verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless? To one another profaning the covenant of our fathers Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in his Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts and this second thing you do godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of God. Now, to orient our discussion this morning, I want to talk about what this passage is is dealing with. There were two particular issues, and we need to have those in the back of our mind because it doesn't answer every question about marriage. It doesn't deal with every problem related to marriage. But there were two very specific problems that that were taking place in which this passage uh, deals with. The first one is in verses 11 and 12. There you have God confronting marriage to someone who doesn't share your faith. It, it says in verse 11 that they have married the daughter of a foreign god. There has, it, 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 there, there has been a, a coming together of people who don't share the deepest part of themselves. In, in entering into a marriage with someone who doesn't share your faith, you're saying, this person is more important than that one. And... God is not only not only rightly feeling it as a rejection of Himself, but He is showing just how dangerous uh, a thing that is. It's like uh, two people coming together in a three-legged race, but heading in different directions. And, and the warning is that you will pull each other down. It's like two people who who come together and they use they are are tuning their instruments to to. Different, uh, different, different courts. And, and, and they will not, as much as they try to come together, because your faith is at the deepest part of who you are, you will always find yourself in ultimate discord. And more importantly, God feels this and takes this as a rejection of him and the importance and the place that he is, have, he is to have in our lives. The second issue he confronts is people who... Divorce their spouses because they don't like them anymore. And maybe they really don't like them anymore, but it's uh, an issue that he confronts in verse 16. There it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now that phrase, covers his garment with violence, is like when we would say to someone, He's got blood on his hands. He doesn't actually have blood on his hands, it's a way of saying his guilt is obvious. Uh, he is covered with shame. And, and it's a similar uh, phrase that's being used here, here to indicate the guilt of someone who says, I'm kind of tired with this one, I'm going to go for that one. Some older translations, maybe if you were reading this morning, you're like, that's not what it says here. Some older translations will take God as the subject and the not liking or hating as being directed towards divorce. Um, Most of the newer translations, people now recognize it's more likely it's a husband as a subject, and what's not being liked and and being hated is the wife and uh, and divorce following as a result of that. Um, Either way, the message is clear, and the problem was clear, that they were... uh, Israelite men were having moved into the back to the promised land from Persia. They were starting a new life. They were starting uh, starting over in a new home and they wanted to start over with a new wife They they had become tired of their Jewish wives and as they moved back They found life difficult Strain economic strain can often put put uh, pressure on a marriage And so there was some of that going on. They also found themselves uh, in in a a delicate situation because they were moving back as outsiders and their land had been desecrated. Around them there were surrounding peoples who had already set up their trade relationships, their business partnerships, and as outsiders they were shut out of those business opportunities. And so there was significant economic opportunities. If you could marry into the, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, then he's gonna treat his son, new son-in-law well and you'd have new business opportunities that would be opened up to you. And so um, most commentators believe that that's some of what was motivating this, uh, these new marriages to new wives and to local women. There wasn't an issue, we need to say, with the fact that they were not Jewish. Uh, Moses had a Cushite wife. Uh, You have uh, David marrying Abigail. You have uh, Rahab uh, and Ruth being welcomed into the people of God. With all of them, although they were foreigners, they were welcomed into God's people because they renounced their false gods and embraced the true God. Here what you have happening is people are bringing their pagan gods with them into the marriage, into um, God's people. And God is saying, this is a deep and profound problem. And it will cause problems for you. And I find, feel it, I, I, I take it as a rejection of myself. And, and so those are those two issues that are going on here. And, and we'll see how God addresses them. If you're if you're single this morning, you will likely be tempted in, in a very similar uh, uh, way and in a very similar area at some point in your life where you will face the decision, do I care more about this guy or this girl who is right before me or do I care more about the God who has loved me and created me? And, and so those, there, there can be times when those, te- those loyalties are tested. If you're married, the temptation is to not fight for your marriage, to not treat as seriously the vows that God has called you to and which you have entered into. And so what he does in in this passage is really lay out then a series of reasons why you should fight for your marriage, uh, why this is something you should work at, and why it's something that he cares about. So let's get into that. Let's get into the, the text Uh, And and the first reason, really, that he gives for uh, fighting for your marriage, and the reason he gives is because you'll have to answer to your heavenly father-in-law. It's a recognition that the person you've entered into a marriage with is not just a person that you met. They're a person whom God has created, uh, that they are his child, and he takes a great concern in their well-being and into this relationship you've entered into. Marriage is worth fighting for because you'll have to answer to your heavenly father-in-law. Verse 10 starts with a question. If you look at it there, it says, have we not all one father? It's a simple question, and it was a rhetorical question. They knew the answer to the question. The answer is yes, we all have one father. You may not understand what that question is doing there, however, The the question is there to remind us of uh, who it is that arranged this marriage. Because in the ancient Near East, as in many other parts of the world today, fathers and marriages were, were closely tied together. The father was the one who arranged the marriage. The father was typically the one who brought together the couple, the, who introduced them to one another, who gave his blessing on the union. And here the reminder is that this, if you have come together in marriage, it is not just you and somebody you met and you kind of just work this up on your own. No, that, that there is a sense in which God has not only created the two of you, but he has arranged this and brought you together. And there is uh, a recognition of him as not only my father, but my heavenly father-in-law. It also helps us recognize that God has created our spouse. Um, When he asks again in verse 10, he says, has not one God created us? And, And here it's a picture that I am not just married to this person that I happen to run into and we happen to fall in love No, I have come into a relationship with someone who has been created by God. And he is their creator, he is their designer, and he's also the one that's created marriage. He's also designed marriage and he knows how it works best. Often we can start making up our own rules about marriage. We can start redefining marriage and we can, in all different kinds of ways, uh, create our own rules for it, our own ideas about it, and recognizing that God is the one who created us and he is the one that created marriage is a recognition. He's the one that we need to seek for our understanding of how it works. He he designed it. He's concerned about it. It's a passion of his, and it's him that we should seek for understanding how it works. One of the ways that God lays out... uh, his idea of marriage, as opposed to our idea of marriage, uh, is when he talks and refers to it as a covenant. He calls it a covenant, not a contract. In verse 10, it speaks of the Israelites profaning the covenant by their unfaithfulness. Or in verse 14, God says, She is your companion and your wife by covenant. A, A contract is a lot more convenient than a covenant. A contract says... I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I will provide certain services and as long as you provide me and meet certain needs that I have. Contracts are are very convenient. Contracts we, we like them because we never have to give more than we get. We meet the we meet the other person in the middle. That's how a contract works. And yet, I have been to many weddings, and you have been to many weddings. You have never heard a couple come together and express contractual-type vows to each other like that. Every every wedding that I've ever been to has said words like, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Those are radically one-sided commitments. Those are words that frame the relationship in terms of a one-sided vow of commitment to the other person, and there are never any conditions given. Many people assume, or maybe they think in their mind, yeah, I'll do all these things as long as he does them back to me. But our vows never say that. Our vows express one-way commitment to take 100% 100% responsibility for the relationship upon ourselves, regardless of whether the other person keeps their end of the bargain. And that's what a covenant is. It's a vow of commitment. And what this passage reminds us of is that God remembers the covenant and the vows that we make even when we don't. You may be thinking, boy, I, I, I barely even remember that. That was such a long time ago, I'd forgotten about that. It's not a really... God remembers. He was there. Uh, Verse 14 says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. He heard what you said. He was there when you said it. He remembers. And, and, And the idea is that he remembers, and he's kind of expecting you to follow through. He's remembering, and he wants us to make good on those promises, knowing full well that responding and making good on those promises will often be extremely difficult. Some of you have met my father-in-law. My father-in-law, yeah, he, he's, uh, he lives in Brampton, but he, he uh, will uh, come out here every once in a while and attend a service with my mother-in-law. And he's a very gentle man. Uh, he's soft-spoken, he's quiet, gentle, very kind. But I know that thing that he will turn into if I were to ever mistreat his daughter. He would, he would very rightly turn into a, uh, a, a means of, ra- of my wrath. Uh, it was, it would, he would confront me. He would deal with me. He would bring his wrath to bear on my life as gentle and uh, otherwise uh, kind and mild-mannered as he is because he cares about his daughter. And that, that, that love that he has for her wants to protect her and to keep her and to keep her from harm. And so he will hold me to account. What this passage reminds me of is the fact that he's not the only one who will hold me to account. What it reminds me of is the fact that I not only have a father-in-law, and I haven't even mentioned my mother-in-law. There would be, 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 be a lot of collateral damage here, but, but father-in-law, mother-in-law, but most importantly, I have a heavenly father-in-law who loves his daughter, and he will hold me account to the vows that I've spoken. He was the witness, and he will be the witness, and, and I will answer to him. So next time you're feeling that your marriage is hard, that it's a lot more work than you were expecting, and the other person just doesn't seem to be lifting the side of the bargain that you were kind of hoping that they would, remember that marriage is worth fighting for because we're all going to have to answer to our Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father-in-law. He will hold us to account, and He's heard those vows, and He expects us to follow through on them. Marriage is also worth fighting for because you'll forfeit God's blessings in your life. God doesn't take it lightly when we take our marriage vows lightly. He doesn't see it as a small thing when we treat our spouse as a small thing. Marriage is worth fighting for because we'll forfeit God's blessings in our life. I want you to look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What's happening is they can't figure out why God's not answering their prayers. Their health is failing. Their career is, is stalling. Their crops aren't coming in. They're, they're, at, at first they think, well, maybe we haven't prayed about it enough. So they dial up the, the, the intensity on their religion and they really start praying. And they're yelling and groaning and there's tears coming down their face and they're crying out to God. And they don't know, like, why is he not listening to us? Like, where's God? And he answers them in this passage. They had given God their offerings they had given God their sacrifices, and now they figured, God owes me. I have done all that he's asked of me. He's got to come through. And what becomes clear here is that when we treat God's child lightly, he will respond to us in kind. When, when we refuse to listen to the cries of our spouse and take up the, the marriage vows that God has called us to, we will find that he is not hearing our cries. He is standing between us and the, the prayers that we lift up before him. And so it is, uh, and, and so it is that sense that mar- marital sin forfeits the blessing of answered prayer. The confidence that God hears us, that he's on our side, because we have chosen to put ourselves against him, and to stand uh, against the the person that he's created for us. The same kind of warning is made in 1 Peter 3.7. This isn't just an old covenant thing. In 1 Peter 3.7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's a a message that your heavenly father-in-law rises to the defense of his child. He will not let someone die in this this marriage without coming to their aid, without coming to lift them up and come to their defense. If you've ignored your spouse's tears, God will turn his back upon your own. God feels that strongly about our marriages. He feels that strongly about the vows that we make. When we stop fighting for our marriage, we forfeit the blessing of answered prayer. We also forfeit the blessing of companionship. You see that in verse 14. It says, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your spouse is God's means of companionship. you, You read that and you can't help but think of Adam in the garden. It is not good for man to be alone and after having gone, all to, gone to all the trouble of having arranged the marriage and provided a means of companionship, if you disregard that one that God has pr- provided as a means for you to, someone to share the, 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 the joys, someone to share the struggles with you, and you disregard that, you are turning your back on the means that God has provided for your companionship. You forfeit something that was intended for you as a gift. marital sin forfeits the blessing of companionship, also the blessing of wholeness. When we talk about divorce lightly, we ignore the radical unity that the Bible talks about when it describes marriage. Verse 15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? A married couple, a married couple is not just two people who have entered into a contract to share living space together. It is not that. Somehow, the Bible says, when two people come together in marriage, there is what's often referred to as a mystical union. There is a joining of two as one. There, and, and God does something by his spirit to unite the two as one so that those two cannot now be separated, that one cannot now be divided without deep emotional and spiritual scars. That's why when Jesus described marriage the way he did, he said in Matthew 19.6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's a, it's a reminder, God has joined something together. There is, there, it's, it's not just two people sharing space, but they have come together as one, and when those, those, that one is divided and torn apart, there will be scars. There will be deep wounds. Marital sin forfeits the blessing of wholeness. So we've said that marriage is worth fighting for because you'll have to answer to your heavenly father-in-law, and because it forfeits some of the blessings of God. But God gives one more reason in this passage. And the reason is that marriage is worth fighting for because your children's godliness rides on it. There are things that will be learned and can only be learned in the context of seeing a healthy marriage between two people Sinners, though they may be, fighting to make it work, they can express and communicate some things about the nature of the covenant relationship that God wants with us that stir in children a longing to, be, to enter into that covenant themselves with God and to be made into his, in, into his likeness. So marriage is worth fighting for because children's godliness rides on it. And when we say this, we're going beyond what people normally say when they say, we're sticking it out for the sake of the children. When people say they're sticking it out for the sake of their children, what they're typically saying is they're, they're referring to uh, statistics and studies that have been done that say when there's divorce, there's often emotional scars, there's psychological uh, Uh, challenges that will come to children. And so the couple says, we'll stick it out for the sake of the children. Those consequences are real, but this passage is talking about something deeper than that. I want you to take a look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Your heavenly father-in-law wants what every father-in-law wants. Grandchildren. But not just any grandchildren. He wants grandchildren in the family resemblance. He wants grandchildren that resemble something of his own character, his own likeness. And... It's an encouragement, frankly. It's an encouragement that you're not alone. If you're married and you have children, you're not alone at this. God is actually seeking to bring about godliness in your children. He is seeking their purification. He is seeking their growth. He is seeking their faith. And the message here is that the way that we treat our vows and the way that we treat our spouses has a direct impact on that. So when marriage is tough and you're patient, you teach your children something of the patience of God. When your spouse disappoints you and you show forgiveness, you teach your children something of the forgiveness of God. When your spouse falls down and you pick them up, you give your child the hope that when they fall down, that God will come and lift them up. You communicate those things in marriage. You have the capacity. It doesn't, it's not automatic, but you have the potential to communicate those and so many other things through the way that you share life with your spouse. Your child learns as much theology from your marriage as they will ever learn from Sunday school. And your life, your marriage can either affirm or deny almost everything that they learn from the Bible. It it is in the context of marriage that you will give meaning to words like faithfulness, patience, kindness, forgiveness, commitment. And those words are crucial to your child's understanding of who God is and the kind of covenant relationship that he seeks with each of us. If that sounds dramatic, I believe marriage is that foundational. I, I see the scriptures teaching it is that central. And, and God is seeking godly offspring. Your heavenly father-in-law is seeking children after the family resemblance. He's doing that, and so he's calling you. He's warning you of, of the dangers. He's showing us what's at stake here. Marriage is worth fighting for because your children's godliness rides on. Now, I hope you've heard God's heart for marriage from this passage. And yet, if we were to leave it here, many people would go away with, I believe, uh, an incomplete picture of what the scriptures teach about marriage. That incomplete picture, maybe maybe we could start with the fact that Jesus was never married. Jesus deliberately chose a life of singleness. And in so doing, he dignified singleness. He showed the honor of a life of singleness in a culture then, as it is today, where people will, will look down on them, treat it as second best. He also taught some things about the institution of marriage that were surprising to people. He taught that in heaven, there is no marriage. He taught that there, we, there won't be any giving in marriage anymore. There won't be human marriage in heaven. It is... A temporary institution. It's temporary because it's supposed to point to something else. It was never supposed to be an end in itself. Marriage as we know it is often broken. If we're honest this morning with the scriptures in our own hearts, we recognize we often haven't fought as we should. And even sometimes when we have fought as much as we could possibly fight for marriage, our spouse has fought just as hard to tear it down and to tear it apart. (laughs) And even when both spouses come together and they fight for marriage with everything that they have, it's still hard. It, It still falls short of all that we'd hoped for. It falls short of what we longed for it to be. So what's the point of marriage? Why even create an institution that was at best temporary and creating so much disappointment, never filling never living up to its hope and its expectation and its ideal? Why even bother? Why did God even create such a thing? The point is, human marriage points to the deep, satisfying, faithful, covenant relationship that God seeks with each one of us. He fulfills all that human marriage points to but falls short of. It's that relationship that is eternal. And it's that which marriage points to and gives us a hunger for and a longing. In the book of Isaiah, God speaks to those who are broken and he addresses those who have felt the pain of, of conflict, of, uh, of loss, of disappointment. And he says this, you shall no longer be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. People look to marriage hoping for a secure, stable, faithful relationship with someone who will be their companion, who will sacrifice for them, and who will be there for them. And someone who expresses, frankly, the kind of delight delight in them that God expresses here for those of us who have entered into a covenant with him. When people's hopes for marriage fall short, they often become cynical. They can become negative and think, it was foolish of me to get my hopes up with something foolish of me to expect more of marriage than it is. But it's supposed to create a hunger in you for the, only thing that, for the thing that only God can give. God is the one whom we find that security, that faithfulness. God is the one who is the covenant keeper. God is the one who is our most faithful companion. God is the one who knows us with an intimacy, with a a strength of devotion. God is the one who takes delight in us, even when he knows the sinners that we are and the things that we've done. And it is ultimately our covenant relationship with him that marriage was pointing to all along. Robertson, Robertson McQuilkin was a missionary to Japan. He was something of a hero to me. Uh, he, was, he served there for 12 years, and uh, I learned from his writings as I served as a missionary there. When he, when he uh, left Japan, he went on to become the president of Columbia University, it was a very prestigious post. Uh, he, he had the status that comes with uh, being something of a Christian statesman and having uh, a position of great influence. But... When he could have continued in that position and served with great distinction, he instead chose at a certain point to prematurely end his career and step down to care full-time for his wife who suffered from Alzheimer's. In the book, Promise Kept, he describes what it was like to travel with her. He would take short trips uh, by, by plane, and, and he said whenever he did, it was, it was a big commotion. Uh, when she had to go to the washroom, he would get go into the, the little uh, airplane cubicle with her because he knew when she was inside, if she locked that door, she might not ever unlock that door, or get back out again. He described sitting in that airplane and there was just this constant, uh, every few minutes she would ask the same questions. Where are we? Where are we going? How long will it be? And, and she would just walk through those questions again and again. And each time he would reassure her, it's going to be okay. We're, we're going home. We're, we're just in a plane right now. or just taking a trip. He kept repeating himself. When his wife was younger, she was a walker. She was a, an avid walker. And, and with Alzheimer's, what she would often do is she would stand up and she would just take off and start walking somewhere. And, and, and Robertson McWilkin would have to chase after her because she could be going in any direction and, and find herself in trouble. And so he would often be chasing her down the aisles of the plane and leading her back to her seat. And as he was going through all of this, there was a woman uh, dressed professionally with her laptop out, working very studiously with some shuffling some papers. And without looking up, she said something and, and he was the only one in earshot and so he assumed that she was speaking to him and he said, pardon, what, what, what did you say? And she said, I, would just, I was just saying to myself, I wonder if I'll ever find a man who will love me like that. His love gave a small picture of what it is, love, what it is like to be loved by our creator God. His love and his faithfulness to his marriage vows, his faithfulness to his spouse pointed her to something that I believe we all long for. We all long to be loved by a deep, committed, powerful love, a love that doesn't disappoint us, a love that doesn't forsake us, a love that will fill us and forgive us and accept us, a love of companionship, a love of warmth and support. And the message of the Scriptures is that that love is to be found in our covenant-keeping God. That human marriage, as good as it can be, is pointing us to another covenant relationship one that we can enjoy with Him, and one which doesn't disappoint. If you don't know that covenant-keeping God, if you haven't entered into a covenant relationship with Him, I want to urge you to come to Him. If you have responded to Him, I want to urge you to revel in this depth of love that He has poured out in our lives. And I want to encourage each of us to express that kind of love in the relationships that he's placed around us, and in particular, in those covenant relationships, in, the, in, in marriage, if that is what God has led you to. Let's look to him in our own prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd give us the help and wisdom that we need in this whole area of marriage. So often we get it wrong, and so often even when we understand what it is that we're to do, we we fall short. I pray, Father, this morning for those who are single. Would you help them to avoid compromise? Would you give them contentment in the fullness of your love and companionship? I pray for those who are married. Would you help us to fight for our marriage? Help us to fight to be faithful. Fight to be pure. Fight to be forgiving. And I pray, Father, for all of us. Help us to remember that human marriage was never the end goal. It's only pointing to something more permanent, and ultimately more satisfying. Help us to set our hearts on your love. For we praise you in Jesus' name.